today, <clears throat> we recall the, uh, the arrival of John the Baptist and his ministry of preparation for the coming of Messiah. It's the second Sunday of Advent. Um, I did not grow up with a very strong Advent uh, connection. I knew it was there. To me, Advent was a calendar that had chocolate in it. Um, uh, but, but we brought the Christmas tree out. We, we sang Christmas carols right from December 1st, probably. Um, so Ad, Advent was kind of tucked in there. Um, as a, as a, an Anglican now, that, uh, you know, I've, I've done my best to try to kind of tame the pressure of launching into Christmas music too early. Um, but Advent is a penitential season. It's a time of preparation, and that's really important to, to kind of grab hold of, particularly in our culture that rushes to these kinds of consumerist interpretations of our holidays. John the Baptist and his ministry of preparation is a sobering note uh, into the whole season here. Uh, John really belongs to the Old Testament prophetic tradition and really is the last of the great prophets of that age prior to the arrival of the Messiah. And like the prophets of old, he brings a warning and a call to repentance so that the heart is prepared like fallow ground for the seed of the kingdom that will be sown by the Messiah himself. And that's why John is the greatest of all the prophets, because he alone, in a certain kind of unique way, was the foreteller of Jesus of Nazareth. His ministry is foretold in the prophet Malachi, which in the Christian order of the Old Testament is the last book of the Old Testament. And that's uh, important for for. Christians, of course, because the connection uh, is between the last verses of Malachi, which foretell the, minister, the, the arrival of John the Baptist. Malachi says there's going to be a prophet like Elijah that will, will come, and Jesus identifies him as John. Malachi is a really interesting prophet. He prophesies after the Israelites had returned to the land of Israel from exile. Remember uh, your kind of 32nd history of Israel. Israel's called as a people. They have the period of the kings, uh, which is uh, Saul and, and David and Solomon. And then, and then things kind of bust up into two kingdoms, the north and the south kingdom. Uh, you have good kings and bad kings. Uh, they can't really keep the train on the tracks. And so uh, they get thrown into exile as kind of a uh, fruit of their rebellion. All right. And that exile goes north and south, but uh, especially up into Babylon. And then you have a really interesting thing happens. Um, the Persians defeat the Babylonians, and this guy named Cyrus gives an edict uh, to encourage the, the exilic Jewish people to return back to their holy land, the land of Israel, and rebuild the temple. And that's the end of the Old Testament era. And the, there are prophets that are prophesying in that time. So you have some prophets that are prophesying before the exile, and you have some prophets that are prophesying after the exile. And here, Malachi is a post-exilic prophet, a guy that preaches after the exile as Israel is, as the, uh, the, is the, um, the Jewish people are returning to the land of Israel. But sadly, uh, they are not as in, they're not in great shape. And it's hard to say, but here again... The Jewish people are not living up to the requirements of the Torah, and they are desecrating the newly renovated temple. 
Um, they're not giving their offerings to the Lord, and the offerings they are given are blind and lame, and they're not the first fruits of their produce. And they're not offering their tithe, which means the temple newly rebuilt is already falling into disrepair. And Malachi is interesting. He, uh, the Lord, through Malachi, enters into a series of disputes with Israel, and there are questions that are asked, a uh, very Jewish thing to do. Um, the questions in the Old Testament are a great way to kind of run through and study what God is interested in. Um, God says in chapter 2, verse 17, which just precedes our passage here, uh, God says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And Israel says in response, how have we wearied the Lord? Well, they weary the Lord by presuming that God's initial inaction means that he doesn't care. In other words, they're saying, look, we're, we're doing bad things, but nobody seems to be punishing us. So they say, where is the God of justice? Meaning we're acting unjustly, but we're not getting punished for it. So I guess he's not really around. It's a terrible thing to say. Um, it's an, a misinterpretation of God's patience and of his long-suffering. Well, God's reply comes through with quite a deal of strength. He says, I will send my messenger, which is exactly what the word Malachi means. Malachi means my messenger. I will send my messenger to prepare the way for the Lord who will come suddenly so he's saying to the, the Israelites, you think I'm not doing anything, but my day is going to come suddenly like a, ref, like a fire to refine and cleanse the temple that the Israelites were desecrating. God says he will be swift to judge. And, and in his judgment, actually, if you read farther on into the passage, he will create among some a will to repent and a capacity to receive the blessings of the covenant. So judgment has always been a key theme in Scripture, but it's a challenging concept in the Bible. The theme of judgment brings together complex ideas with powerful metaphors, addressing whole nations and spanning epochs of time. Judgment isn't really describable in just one act uh, or expression. It's a complex series of expressions. Nonetheless, it is a central theme in our creeds and our confessions. We'll talk again today or we'll recite after the sermon that uh, we are waiting for one who will come to judge the quick and the dead. The church has historically expected that Christians embrace the reality of judgment as a dear and essential aspect of worship and formation. Not something to put on the back burner on outside or we don't like that too much. We should actually bring this concept close. Christian faith without judgment is a distortion of the gospel. And wherever you find Christian theology without judgment, you will find various forms of prosperity gospels or therapeutic ideas and things that just won't address the uncomfortable elephant in the room, which is our brokenness and our sin. So one way of describing judgment is that it's a collision of God's kingdom with ours. It's the impact of the coming of God's kingdom into our world. And it's the effect of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. 
When you have the intersection of those two things, you'll get judgment. Ultimately, the final judgment is the union of God's world and ours so that our world is transformed into the new world where sin and death and corruption are finally overcome. So judgment is actually a fundamental aspect of Christian hope that things are put right once and for all. Now, as individuals, we wonder where we might fit within all that upheaval and convulsion as the world gives way to the new world. Judgment isn't a warm and snuggly word, and it may sound strange to think it's a word that we want to embrace. Of course, part of judgment is that God will mercifully set the captive free, and that's fantastic. Judgment is great news for captives, for the poor, for those who have been on the outside. But I wonder myself, am I a captive or am I a captor? I mean, I know I'm a sinful person. You know that parable of the sheep and the goats, a famous judgment parable where God distinguishes one group from the other. The sheep are kind of the good guys and the goats are kind of the bad guys. Well, the only thing at times I can really relate to in the sheep uh, is that they're kind of clueless. That I can relate to. Um, but it's hard for me to stand there before the Lord and say, yeah, I'm one of those guys. I mean, really, it, it, it's a sobering idea to think about where do I fit within this broader scope of the emergence of God's world into my own. As the Lord says through the prophet Malachi in verse 2 of our reading here in chapter 3, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? I feel that that way. Indeed, as the author of Hebrews says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, especially, he says, if we go on sinning deliberately. But I want us to press on here. I want to exhort us to embrace judgment as a precious idea and to welcome it, not because it isn't a sobering term, but because the God who is judge is also the God who justifies, who saves, who restores, and at the heart of the matter here is a fundamental trust in the character of God. That's what's wrong between the sheep and the goats, between those who make presumptuous statements about God and His not caring and those that welcome Him. It's a fundamental trust in the character of God and in His intention to bring His grace and love to its fullest expression in your life and indeed in all aspects of creation. You see, there are subtlety, subtleties in Malachi's words here. The Israelites are presumptuous. They beg the question, where is God? And perhaps, I don't know, maybe it's with a bit of sarcasm, sarcasm that God says, oh, the one you seek, he's coming, but who can endure it, he says. But, of course, there's more than just sarcasm. He reaches very deep into the Israelite mem memory. And he says, The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. The messenger of the covenant is delightful because the covenant is delightful. The metaphor that follows in chapter 4 describes Israel as leaping like Calves from the stall, and you can find that in our psalm this morning. 
Um, Psalm 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. We were like those who will, um, we will go out weeping. We, we shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. In other words, these are metaphors of delight, jumping, leaping, joyful expressions. That's the essential nature of the covenant that God has created with his people. The covenants and the promises are among the most sacred and special of all the features of the Israelite faith, where God established a unique relationship with Israel so that through them, the whole world would be blessed. So judgment is a subplot in the larger picture of God bringing to fruition the blessings of relationship with him. That's what all this is about. That's what all this is about. It's the yielding of the sinful world, of resistance to God, to a world in which God is no longer resisted, and the world crescendos into its fullest expression of God's joy and delight in all that He has made and remade. The day of the Lord that comes burning like an oven in chapter 4, verse 1 of Malachi, is for those who fear His name, the Son of Righteousness, rising with healing in its wings, following on in, in the book. It's the same heat, but experienced much differently by those who resist versus those who welcome it and share in its glory. That's what Malachi is saying. He's saying God will not be stopped from purifying the sons of Levi and the offerings of righteousness, which are foundational for worship in the temple. He won't be stopped in purifying them. Likewise, he will not be stopped in fulfilling the promise inherent in the temple of the Old Testament that his presence will be even more permanently established in the new temple, his people themselves. He says in verse 5, I will draw near. God drawing near, that's the cause of judgment. When he draws near, the effect of his nature upon everything and everyone around him is to judge unrighteousness and establish justice. That is what John foretold in the coming of Messiah, Jesus, most likely the messenger of the covenant described in Malachi. John says of Jesus' ministry, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We feel it, I think, the colliding worlds of God's righteousness and the brokenness of our own world. Through Malachi, God called on Israel to worship with integrity. It means to be faithful in marriage, to speak honestly, to treat workers and strangers and the poor with justice and hospitality. Those are signs of what it's like in God's kingdom and what it will be like in the new world when all such maltreatment will be eliminated. So I can understand why this is such good news for the poor, for strangers, for people who are getting underpaid. It's good promise and good news for such. But I sometimes wonder how this can be such good news for Steve Engstrom. I'm ambivalent sometimes about my place in all this. I've had my consciousness raised by my Anglican tradition by repenting of things left undone, which is a category as deep as the ocean in my mind. 
if I'm not careful, I just never get past that. Now, on the one hand, I have been taught rightly, and I hope you've been taught too, that we are saved by grace and not by works. It is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast, says Paul. I've been taught rightly that we should put our trust in Jesus who alone can justify me on the day of judgment and be my advocate and my friend in that very hour. His sacrifice of himself on the cross in my place is 100% sufficient for me and is an expression of the love of God for me, making a way for me to become fully reconciled with him. I've been taught rightly that I am a new creation in Christ Jesus and that I have been fully adopted into his family and have been made an heir of his estate. These are not conditional things. This isn't a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's 100%. You're either a new creation or you're not. You're either adopted into his family or you're not. And you are. There's a great deal of focus in Paul to undermine any hesitation of knowing whether we belong to God. When we put our faith and our trust in him, that his death and resurrection and ascension is fully sufficient for our reconciliation, he says we have passed from death to life. We were sons of darkness. We have become sons of light. We have inherited eternal life. There cannot be a question mark in your heart over whether or not God loves you and whether you're the apple of his eye. Even more, Jesus is making a place for us in his home right now and is preparing us, believe it or not, to rule and reign with him in the new world, which staggers my mind. Of course, the gospel is so much bigger than you and me, but it is not smaller than you and me. If he knows when a sparrow falls, he surely delights in providing each one of us who have professed faith with our eternal inheritance where we see him face to face and enjoy all of the benefits of the good life that he has in mind, most of all the unceasing light of his presence. But within all of that, there is something else going on. With the first advent of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven broke through into this world. And he has called us into that kingdom right now. That future kingdom is here now in Jesus Christ. There is right now a man in that new world, Jesus, who is standing before God the Father and interceding for us that his will may be done in earth as it is in heaven through us. This isn't a future thing. This is a now thing. And because it's a now thing, we are still engaged in a process of experiencing the pressures of being conformed to the image of Christ, which is another way of saying what all this is about from Paul in Romans 8, 29. It's his will that the image of Christ be formed in us. And these pressures are what we experience when the free and gracious life of Christ press against our flesh, to use the old Bible word, the flesh isn't our bodies per se, it's our old way of doing things grounded in self-preservation and fear and selfishness and shame and pride and self-justification and a whole lot of other things that are sinful or mature or broken or unwhole. So Christian faith is grounded 100% in Christ. 
He alone is our hope and salvation. But the point of that isn't simply that a transaction about our future was made and we get off the hook. Rather, it's that a relationship was formed between you and me and our Creator. It's a very personal sort of thing. In that sense, we are meant to experience God personally. And by that, I don't necessarily mean anything sentimental. Not always like just warm fuzzies, although that's a good thing and we should have warm fuzzies sometimes. What I mean is that our faith and our trust become very personal, very concrete in the lives we live and the people with whom we live them. That's what I mean by personal. There's a personal connection. Paul talks about having love, which is the greatest of all things. Love is a personal thing. It involves our feelings, but it involves so much more. That's why God is sharing through Malachi that the impact of the kingdom moving in through his people is that it has this effect on the community around us. It involves our tithes and offerings. It involves how we pay workers. It involves whether our eyes are open to the needs of those who are around us, the widows and the fatherless. Widows and fatherless, by the way, is a very important term. In the ancient Near East, uh, if you were a widow or a fatherless person, you had no access to resources. You were extraordinarily vulnerable because the way that resources were channeled in that society was through a patriarchal kind of system and, and in a family unit. So to be widowed and to be fatherless meant you were outside the economic security of that time. And what God is saying is that in his world, there are no such people. There are no such people that are outside the family. And so this kind of collision of his world and ours is meant to be very personal because each one of us has communities. Each one of us has families. I don't know what your Thanksgiving was like. Mine was rather dramatic on the family scene. And I'm still kind of Working through that, I know that's, uh, some of us are praying about these things together. There's a lot of collision and pressure going on in my family system, and I am meant, as a believer, to view that the way that God views it and see in that an opportunity to see judgment and reconciliation as God's will, and I am meant to align with that. That's what I'm to do. The gospel in me is meant to bear that kind of fruit, so when Malachi and John are asking, as those who are preparing the way, is that we yield to this pressure. A soft heart repents. A soft heart listens. A soft heart responds. And Malachi says in the last uh, verses of our passage here, he says that the whole point is that when the Lord comes, chapter 4, verse 5, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Soft hearts become the sort of hearts that can be reconciled to God and to each other. They can be hearts that produce great fruit. And that's the sort of fruit that God delights in. Where people are treated fairly, where people belong where people are reconnected to each other and to God. Judgment is not meant to destabilize our 
confidence in belonging to God. Paul says in our passage today, I do not even judge myself. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But judgment is meant to separate us evermore from that which pulls us away from God, quenching the spirit or creating obstacles to the free expression of the kingdom of heaven. That is why we can welcome the second coming of Christ as we welcome and remember the first. When he returns, he will bring to completion the good work that he has begun in you. The more you welcome that good work in you now, the more you will delight in his return. So in closing, I just want to encourage us during this Advent season to welcome this word judgment into your sacred vocabulary. Ask the Lord, where am I resisting the grace of God in my life? Where in my family system and friendships and community do I discern the collision of God's kingdom with our fallen natures? And how can I align with God and contribute to his work with all of my resources financially, spiritually, emotionally, with my words and actions? How can I pray with more vigor and fidelity for the judgment of God in myself and in my world? You know, on fast Fridays, these are things maybe we can bring to God in prayer, among other things. I'd like to close with the words of the Apostle Paul to Titus, because I think here he summarizes so powerfully the thrust of what we've been exploring this morning. Paul says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Amen.